0: Extrapolator. I'm your host, Jeff Allen, and today we're talking about minds and brains, organisms and systems. And this relates to humans and non-human animals and AI. And this will seem pedantic, but in this episode, when I say animals, I always mean non-human animals. I'm obviously not going to say non-human animals every time, because it's a mouthful, but that's always what I mean. Humans are animals, and you'll soon see why I detest people drawing some arbitrary line between humans and other animals. This is a slightly shorter episode, investigating the differences between humans and other animals, and it's kind of a part one, since I'll be continuing with part two next week, focusing on AI. Many questions about humans and animals and AI lead back to a wider discussion about organisms and systems and minds. Features that are similar, and features that are different. So I want to start by talking about the offence of essentialism. Essentialism is the idea that humans have an essence, which makes them inherently different to other animals. And also the idea that animals are distinct from each other, on the basis of each species' unique essence. And this way of thinking is shockingly widespread, in my opinion, People draw these arbitrary everyday lines between species, you know, dogs are for petting, horses are for riding, pigs are for eating. And there's this underlying assumption that species are naturally different and naturally pigeonholed in this way. We think that it's barbaric to eat a dog, but eating a pig is just part of the natural order of things. As a backdrop to all of this, humans are assumed to be the masters of the earth, which stems from this book of Genesis attitude that humans have dominion over all animals. My argument here is not that we shouldn't think that way. I mean, that's the the ethical anti-religious argument, which I'll save for episode 7. But rather, my argument here is that we can't think that way. It's factually mistaken. But there's this weird, largely implicit assumption that humans are somehow separate from nature and separate from other animals. And to identify the root of the problem, we have to get into some biology or, should I say, philosophy of biology, which is obviously more fun. It all comes down to how we differentiate species. And this may seem like a trivial issue, but it's hugely important for our ethics and for a correct scientific picture of reality. The outdated and incorrect way to differentiate species says that each species has a natural state, And this is the essence of the species. And so any variability within a species is a deviation from this natural state. It is an error. So there's a defined natural way of being for each species. And any individuals that don't align with this natural state must be seen as errors and deviations from type. And this is a misconception. And in fact, it gets evolution wrong and it gets variability wrong. Causation actually runs the other way. Identifying the direction of causation is always crucially important. You may recognise this quote from the movie Mean Girls. Laura, I don't hate you because you're fat. You're fat because I hate you. This character is clarifying the direction of causation. Poor Laura has confused the cause and the effect. Laura, I don't hate you because you're fat. You're fat because I hate you." The essentialists also make an error as to the direction of causation, just like Laura. Essentialists see individual differences as the effects of interfering causes and as errors compared to the true natural state of a species. But individual differences are really the causes of evolutionary events. Variability is not some error And rather, variability is the cornerstone of the correct functioning of the process of evolution. Individual differences are the drivers of evolutionary change, and they are indispensable. So this might seem quite abstract, you know, how to view the direction of causation in evolution, but the takeaway is simple. Species have no essence or natural state. There is no natural way of being for a species or natural way of being for anything, in fact, as we will come to see. I want to plug a Richard Dawkins article that you can read on the website edge.org, and it's titled, What Scientific Idea is Ready for Retirement? And it's very amusing. Dawkins calls essentialism the tyranny of the discontinuous mind, and this is human beings' inability to accept the continuous and graduated nature of all things. We instead look desperately for discontinuities, for essences that clearly separate entities, even though no sharp divides exist in nature. So for instance, paleontologists, trying to classify a new fossil, will argue about whether it is Homo or Australopithecus. But the trouble is, there is an unbroken line of ancestors connecting the genus Homo with the genus Australopithecus so plenty of new fossils will appear to be exact intermediates. There is no discontinuity separating the two. If there was, it would mean that there was once an Australopithecus mother who gave birth to a child of the genus Homo, a child of a different genus, which is clearly ridiculous. And yet, we still imagine the human species to be inherently separate from any other. It is only the current gaps in the fossil record that allow us to sharply distinguish species from one another. So we're linked to chimpanzees by a V-shaped chain of individuals, and it's only because those intermediates did not survive that we can place chimpanzees at some distance from human beings. And as Dawkins says, and I quote, If all the intermediates, down both forks of the V from the shared ancestor, had happened to survive, Marlis would have to abandon their essentialist, speciest habit of placing Homo sapiens on a sacred plinth, infinitely separate from all other species. End quote. And by the way, I think we should give particular thanks to religions for licensing that sacred plinth for human beings. But I will save that rant for episode seven. Maybe a true acceptance of a scientific reality will lead to a shift in our ethics. And in our treatment of other animals versus ourselves. And as Dawkins says again, quote, indeed, an early stage human embryo, with no nervous system and presumably lacking pain and fear, might defensively be afforded less moral protection than an adult pig, which is clearly well equipped to suffer, end quote. Is our morality based on empirical measures, like capacity for pain and fear? suffering and flourishing, or is it based on the idea of a natural essence that somehow sets humans apart? And there are many more examples of essentialist thinking. Just think of the way that we view health and disease. You know, Health is a, a natural or ideal state, and disease is an imperfect, incorrect, perverse state. Health is order, disease is disorder. One tool in psychiatry is the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Here, mental illness is often classified as a disorder, but even the term disorder implies and necessitates an order or natural state from which the patient has deviated. And this seems like pervasive essentialism. If we're going to shake essentialism, we'll have to come up with some other terminology not order and disorder. We need terminology that doesn't imagine natural versus unnatural ways of being. Eliot Sober talks about our view of health and disease, and also about our view of nature and the environment. He says that we tend to, quote, picture nature as something apart from us. On this view, we are not part of what is natural, and what we do has the character of an intervention from the outside, into this natural domain." End quote. Of course, pollution and mass extinctions are terrible events, but they are not terrible because they somehow upset the natural order. It is absolutely not a case of unnatural human activities disrupting natural states of being. If you could grant me only one wish, it would be to cancel the word natural. If I can convince you of only one thing by the end of this episode, let it be the untruth of the term natural, and I'll give you three reasons why. Firstly, we are often factually mistaken about what is natural. What counts as natural and what constitutes nature? Well, you can basically discount any domesticated crop or animal. None of these occurred naturally. Wild wheat plants actually shatter, which spreads their seeds. But we engineered the crop that we know today, domesticated wheat, using a genetic mutation of non-shattering wheat, which means that the seeds can be harvested later. So wheat crops are not natural. Almonds are actually bitter and poisonous in the wild, but we engineered one strain to be sweeter and edible. And the same is true for lots of fruits. We made them larger, sweeter, with smaller pips, and a greater proportion of edible flesh. Seedless grapes are obviously a human creation, and as are chihuahuas, and all dogs for the record. So what we consider to be nature is often factually mistaken. Second, We can be confused by the structures made by animals. If a bird, which is a natural animal, builds a nest, then the nest is also natural. And then if a human, a natural animal, builds a nice little cairn of stones, then that's natural I suppose. And then suppose she builds a fire, is that natural? And then suppose she builds a Toyota Prius. The surprising fact that there is no discontinuity between us and nature. There is no such essence that nature possesses. A bird's nest is no more or less natural than a Toyota Prius. Though you might object and say, well, the nest was built with naturally occurring materials, unlike the Toyota Prius. Which brings me to my third reason, the contingency of Earth's ecosystem. How do we define naturally occurring materials? Here on Earth, we have access to accidentally and contingently present materials. The plant and animal kingdom is composed of carbon and water. But on Saturn's moon Titan, methane exists in all three states of matter, solid, liquid and gas. And in fact, it's the only other place in the solar system where a substance exists in solid, liquid and gas. Although it is negative 180 degrees Celsius. But still, we can conceive of alternative life forms on Titan, made of, let's say, silicone and methane, as opposed to carbon and water. So it's arbitrary to select the materials that happen to occur on Earth as those that are natural. The silicone and methane that occur on Titan are just as natural or unnatural as the carbon and water that occur on Earth. So really, we have to eliminate the essentialist thinking and stop viewing any entities as natural in essence. Planets are different. Ecosystems are different. Organisms constantly evolve. No materials or states of being are any more natural than others. So what does this mean for human ethics? Well, originally, almonds evolved to be bitter and grapes evolved to have seeds, but that doesn't mean we have a duty to protect their being that way. There is nothing inherently good or bad about reshaping plants and animals, because there was nothing inherently natural or correct about the way they were in the first place. There was nothing inherently natural or correct about a grape with seeds, so there was nothing unnatural about engineering a grape without seeds. We need only be concerned with positive or negative side effects. Pollution and mass extinctions are obviously terrible, but they're no more or less natural than birds or humans or cars. So can we please stop labelling certain things as natural? It's a misconception and it doesn't get us anywhere. So far, you've had a very clear insight into the way I view humans and animals and AI. There is nothing in principle that separates them. There is no essence separating humans from animals or human intelligence from artificial intelligence. So that is my clear baseline. And I'd now like to talk a bit more about humans and animals. What makes them similar and what makes them different? Humans have culture. Culture is often cited as one factor that sets humans apart from other animals. We may have bowels and teeth and a dependence on oxygen, just like other animals, but we have culture. We have Tolstoy and ABBA and films starring Nicolas Cage. But what is culture? Well, I'm going to give you one definition and it's going to be satisfyingly simple in a reductively biological way. First, we need to talk about information. How is information transmitted from one organism to another and from one individual to another? What mechanisms are available? Well, the most prolific mechanism is the gene. Genetic information is passed from one generation to the next, through reproduction. And what genetic information survives, and is successfully passed on, depends on selective pressures, like predators and food availability. So genetic information transmits a code through successive generations, from successive individuals who are able to find food and avoid predators and reproduce. The gene is the unit of this genetic information. The gene is what is transmitted from one generation to the next. But another type of information is the meme. Meme is a term coined by Richard Dawkins in his very famous book, The Selfish Gene. And whereas a gene is a unit of genetic information, a meme is a unit of cultural information. A meme is transmitted not between individuals in successive generations, but between individuals within the same generation. And in fact, memes can be shared and discussed many times within the same generation. And this creates a huge competitive advantage. If one individual discovers some new piece of information, a new way to find food or avoid a predator, then they can quickly pass this meme on. Consider an earthworm. In order to transmit information, it must reproduce or die, failing to reproduce. And this transmits some information through the genes that are passed, or not passed, to the next generation of earthworms. And it's a very slow way to learn, when you have to wait for someone to reproduce, or to die. But when a human wants to transmit information, they are not limited to transfers of genetic information. And yes, they can wait until they reproduce or they die, but they also have access to memetic information, memes. They can easily communicate with individuals of the same generation using language and nonverbal communication, teaching new methods and sharing ideas. And this is an exponentially faster way to transmit information. It is one explanation for our very rapid advancements in technology and our general ability to survive. We don't need to wait for the slow transfer. Of genetic information from one generation to the next, a slow drip feed of data about the trial and error of more or less successful ancestors. Instead, we can have a conversation right now about potential fishing spots and new fishing methods and new fishing equipment, and we can cycle through a hundred different versions of these ideas, making exponentially faster progress. So that's one definition of culture. Biological information is transmitted by the gene. Cultural information is transmitted by the meme. Culture is that type of information which is passed between individuals within the same generation by memes rather than by genes. The word meme is now used more narrowly on social media to refer to an edited image, often a piece of visual humour, which is shared and reposted by many individuals online. And the funny thing is, and it's, it is quite funny, is that a social media meme, in the narrow sense, is one type of Richard Dawkins' meme, in the broad sense. A social media meme is a piece of memetic information which is passed by a meme, rather than a gene, and which is passed between individuals of the same generation, rather than successive generations. And you can see how fast they evolve. Social media memes are built on layers and layers of humour and references and satire that constantly morph, creating new trends. And the sheer speed in that production and evolution of social media memes is a clear showcase for the competitive advantage of memetic information over genetic information. So, humans have culture, and we've just defined it in this satisfyingly biological sense... However, now that we have this definition of culture, are we sure that it applies only to humans? Ah, in fact, there are examples of other species transmitting mimetic information. One of the first observations came in the 1950s in Japan, and this is a famous study involving macaque monkeys. One female, named Imo, started dipping her sweet potatoes in a river to clean the sand off, and previously, The macaques in this tribe had just brushed the sand off with their their hands. But Emo's river technique was much more effective. And to the surprise of the researchers, Emo's new river technique started to spread, first to her close kin, and then to the whole tribe. This was a new meme, a new method for washing food that was advantageous. And this memetic information spread, first from Emo to her family and then to the whole tribe and soon the whole tribe were washing their sweet potatoes in the river. And crucially, this habit or behaviour did not arise from genetic information, but rather from mimetic information. And that sounds like culture to me. A much more recent example is found in a 2016 paper by Stephanie Musgrave. Her team was observing chimpanzees in the Republic of Congo, and they observed some chimps teaching others how to fish for termites using these probes. The teaching chimps would provide the learning chimps with probes that they could use to collect termites. So this is another example of mimetic information that is passed from one living chimp to another. This behaviour of fishing for termites is advantageous, and this meme was passed between members of the same tribe. So again, this sounds like culture. Andrew Whiten, a famous psychologist, describes culture as the second inheritance system. The first inheritance system is clearly genetics, since that's how information is passed between individuals within the vast majority of species on Earth. The second inheritance system is memetics, information transmitted via culture. Whiten, in his article The Second Inheritance System of Chimpanzees and Humans, provides evidence for cultural transmission not only between humans, but also between chimpanzees and orangutans. Whiten's evidence supports the existence of these socially learned traditions in other primates. And these traditions include things like a conventional way of clasping hands during grooming, and methods for washing food and seasoning food by dipping potatoes into salty sea water. At the time of publishing, there were 39 different traditions documented in chimpanzee social life, and nineteen different traditions documented among orangutans. And for the record, Whiten makes a technical distinction between a tradition and a culture. Whiten says a tradition is a single behaviour, a single meme, you might say, that is shared by two or more individuals in a social unit. Whereas a culture involves more than one shared behaviour. It involves multiple traditions, of course, multiple shared behaviours, but also things like language and symbolism. So if we're attentive to this technical distinction, one could conclude that chimpanzees have traditions, sometimes multiple traditions, whereas only humans have full-blown culture with the full depth of language and symbolism. But outside of academia, we need not be too careful about the terms tradition versus culture. The bottom line is, there is indeed evidence among chimpanzees and orangutans and macaques of socially transmitted information within individuals of the same generation. So let's not worry too much about whether we refer to this as traditions or culture. For the sake of brevity, I think it's easiest to refer to it as culture. So it appears that culture is not wholly unique to humans. Non-human animals, the macaques in Japan and the chimps in the Congo, share memes with one another. So, what does make humans unique? One answer from Andrew Whiten again is cumulative culture. Humans have an ability to build on the successes of previous generations. They accumulate. There are sedimentary layers of learning that grow more and more with each generation, which lead to complex structures like language and technology. All the evidence from chimps points only to basic and rather one-dimensional traditions, like a way of clasping hands or a way of washing food. These traditions do not evolve and stratify, forming part of a larger technological pursuit, as is the case with human culture. And another uniquely human capacity may be abstract thought. Yes, we've just seen examples of memes with the macaques and the chimps, but those memes were about concrete, present actions. The information that was shared was about washing food, or collecting food, in the here and now. And it's been suggested that what truly sets Homo sapiens apart from other species is the capacity for abstract thought, things that are not concrete, or present, or here and now. This is a central thesis in Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens that Homo sapiens alone have a capacity for abstract ideas, and that this is one of our most important traits and competitive advantages. As Harari puts it, we are not limited to concrete ideas, like that rock, that tree, that potato. We can also think abstractly, that economy, that nation, that God. And this gives us a huge competitive advantage when it comes to cooperation since we have a much wider basis for trust you may have heard of dunbar's number first proposed by the anthropologist robin dunbar the number is 150 and it's a rough estimate of the maximum number of personal relationships that a human being can maintain with regard to cognitive faculties and this places a limit on the maximum size of a community since social cohesion and trust requires a stable personal relationship with each individual and indeed chimpanzees face this exact limitation. They don't live in tribes bigger than 150 individuals, but humans do. Our tribes have millions and even billions of people. Harari says that we can think abstract ideas which enable large-scale cooperation and social cohesion. If I were a chimpanzee, I would need a personal relationship with everyone in my tribe in order to trust them and to live in close quarters. I would need to know Jenny in order to trust that she won't steal my food or stab me in my sleep. But humans don't need this concrete, personal basis for trust. Instead, we have abstract basis for trust. I may never have met Jenny, but I can still trust her, because we are united by shared beliefs in the Republic of Ireland or the Eurozone or the Christian God. And even though Jenny is a stranger, I can still trust her, because we're a part of the same abstract project. And this allows us to radically increase the size of our tribes, since we're not limited to 150 individuals on the basis of personal relationships. Rather, we can live in thousands and millions, since we are united by these shared fictions. And by the way, my favourite part of Harari's account is that he reduces all of these shared fictions to one mechanism. There is no distinction between a national myth an economic myth, and a religious myth. They are all intersubjective constructs with an adaptive function of allowing Homo sapiens to cooperate in huge numbers. There's no more truth in the Christian God than in the Eurozone. They are both useful, but they are both fictions. I love this evolutionary analysis, but it's rather a bold claim, so I'll come back to it in later episodes. Harari's account is rather neat, as it points to abstract thought as a simple demarcation between humans and other animals. And it is certainly true that abstract thought plays a huge role in our culture, and I think it is highly useful to reduce cultural myths, like economies and religions, to this level of evolutionary adaptations. However, it may not be so clear-cut. France de Waal, A famous ethologist provides many empirical examples of animals engaging in apparently non-concrete behaviours. He gives examples of animals planning for the future. Human children have been subjected to the marshmallow test, which tests their ability to delay gratification. So they're given one marshmallow and told they'll be given a second one if they don't eat it, and if they can wait while the experimenter goes away and comes back. A similar test has been done on chimpanzees, and they've been shown to delay gratification for up to 18 minutes. And this surely points to an ability to look into the future, to reason with concepts other than the here and now. Forward-looking behaviour has also been observed in birds. In one experiment, birds hid two types of food, one perishable type, worms, and one durable type, peanuts. If the birds were released after four hours of captivity, they went to look for the worms first, since it was the preferred food. However, if they were only released after five days, they went straight for the peanuts, which were less preferred, but more durable. And they didn't even look for the worms, which would have spoiled by then. So this shows that they have a concept of the worms lasting longer into the future than the peanuts. These examples are by no means clear-cut, but they do suggest some capacity for abstract reasoning that is, reasoning with concepts other than the concrete and the present and the here and now. There is certainly no evidence of shared cultural myths, like Harari's human examples of economic or religious myths, but there is evidence that non-human animals can look beyond concrete entities. I want to wrap up this discussion of concrete and abstract with two remarks. First, the differences between humans and animals are not simple or easy to define. Of course, there is no essence separating us from other species, in principle, but it is also hard to point to differences in practice. Franz de Waal, in particular, hammers home the point that each animal has a different type of intelligence, adapted for different contexts, and they cannot be directly compared. And the second takeaway is that our evolutionary history is very important. When it comes to assessing reality as we perceive it, the explanation for why we entertain notions like the Euro or the Christian God might very well be a matter of adaptive benefits, evolutionary pressures and evolutionary psychology. So the ontological question of whether the European Union exists or whether God exists is most likely not an external matter of reality outside of human beings, but rather an internal matter of our evolutionary history our cognitive psychology, and our intersubjective constructions. If I had to name my biggest pet peeve, the single thing that I find most annoying about how people misconceive the world, it's that people are so often wrong about these categories of existence, and about the location of meaning. They see the dollar as something that is external and objective, when it is actually something internal and constructed. They see God as something external and objective when it is actually something internal and constructed. And as per my rant last week, people also make the opposite mistake. Post-truthers see empirical regularities like the size of Trump's inauguration crowd as something internal when they are actually something external. Constructivists see metaphysical regularities like electrons or the laws of physics as something internal when they are actually something external. People make this error in both directions and I feel very strongly that it is my mission to correct these misconceptions. I've already delved into this topic in the last episode and I'll have much more to say about it in future episodes, and I'm sure you can hardly wait. So that's where I want to leave it for today. In the next episode I'll be turning my focus away from humans and animals and towards AI. The topic of AI is very closely related since it reopens familiar questions. Can we formalize human intelligence and cognition? Is human cognition special? How and why did intelligence evolve? And what does intelligence achieve from the perspective of survival and evolutionary adaptation? AI raises questions on the cutting edge of philosophy about the mind, and it is one very promising avenue for progress and careful extrapolation. for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it or leave a review online or just tell a friend. I've spent a great deal of time since the start of lockdown in April or March 2020, thinking about these topics, writing about these topics. And I'm keen to expand the conversation to reach as many people as possible. Extrapolator was written and recorded by me, Jeff Allen. I also wrote and recorded the music. And you can find it on Spotify under the title entry music for a podcast the artwork was created by extrapolator twin brother Hugh Allen you can find the bibliography for this episode on my blog at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com for each episode I provided a full list of the books and articles mentioned and you might feel the urge to dive deeper into one of these sources and that's all for today until next time